Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. A surge in the potent opiate drug fentanyl is raising alarms in tribal communities. One of our guests today has lost three relatives to overdoses in the past two years. Tribal leaders, health experts, and law enforcement officials are appealing to state and federal officials and with their own citizens for answers. We'll hear about what's pushing the rise in fentanyl deaths and the commitment tribal officials are making to head off the crisis. That's coming up right after the news. National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Alaska Federation of Natives is saying very little after the recent withdrawal of two tribal organizations from AFN, but as Rhonda McBride reports, early leaders of the AFN are talking. The Central Council of Clinket and Haida and the Tanana Chiefs Conference are among some of the largest tribal organizations in Alaska. Their sudden exit brings the number of recent departures from AFN to five, including three prominent native corporations. After AFN held its quarterly board meeting this week, it announced plans for its next convention, but only made brief mention of the departures. Instead, it said it asked a few of its founders to reflect on the sacrifices made to form AFN, apparently for the benefit of today's leaders. They're living the dream that their grandparents sacrificed for. Emil Nadi was one of those invited to speak at the meeting. Nadi was the first president of AFN, which successfully fought for one of the largest land claim settlements in U.S. history. Nadi says he told the board how early leaders donated time and effort to fight for land claims at great personal cost. Some even mortgaged their homes. He says today's leaders have good jobs and good educations, things they take for granted. AFN is a gift to them. Some Native leaders have wondered if the tribes were unhappy with AFN's longtime president, Julie Kitka. Rosita Worrell, head of Sea Alaska Heritage Institute, says she hopes that's not true because Kitka has been highly effective. She pointed to AFN's Alaska Day in Washington, D.C. this March, which brought six White House cabinet members and four generals together to meet with Alaska Native leaders. We have someone at the leadership helm who can pick up a phone and call the White House. The two tribal organizations have said they believe they can be more effective working on their own. I'm Rhonda McBride. This week, the First Lady made a quick stop in Bethel, Alaska, where she highlighted the administration's broadband investments. KYUK's Francisco Martinez-Cueo reports. Joe Biden, along with Interior Secretary Deb Holland, were warmly greeted on the tarmac by Representative Mary Paltola, the First Lady of the state of Alaska, and City Mayor Rose Sugar Henderson during a quick visit to Bethel, where Internet access is very limited. The First Lady highlighted a broadband fiber optic extension being constructed this year. And this is one of the largest tribal broadband expansions in our country. With high-speed Internet, you'll have better access to critical health care, new educational tools, and remote job opportunities. The Biden administration has awarded $386 million in tribal broadband connectivity program grants to 21 projects throughout Alaska, 
with funding from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and Consolidated Appropriations Acts of 2021. In 2022, the Biden administration awarded roughly $125 million in funding to two broadband infrastructure deployment projects in the YK Delta. One of these projects is the Alaska Fiber Optic Project. The other funding is going directly to the IHUC Network, an initiative developed in partnership from the Bethel Native Corporation and GCI, Alaska's largest telecommunications company. I'm Francisco Martinez Cuello. The U.S. Department of Agriculture Thursday announced $16 million in funding for projects to help increase participation in WIC, which provides supplemental foods, health care referrals, and nutrition education to women, infants, and children. Some tribal programs are among the 36 projects to receive funding. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by the National Indian Education Association's 54th Convention and Trade Show held in Albuquerque starting October 18th. Education sovereignty. It begins with us. Early bird registration ends July 18th at NIEA.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. The head of the California Native American Legislative Caucus says fentanyl poses serious health and economic hardships for tribal communities. His comments were part of a recent roundtable with tribes to try and head off a surge in overdose deaths from the powerful synthetic drug. California tribes are among many that are sounding the alarm. Fentanyl overdose deaths are surging. In their most recent report, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention show an increase of nearly 280% over five years. The Blackfeet Nation declared a state of emergency after a string of fentanyl deaths. The Lummi Nation is hosting a summit next week to develop a plan of action. We'll talk with tribal leaders and health experts today about the fentanyl crisis. Has your community been affected? Have you seen the effects firsthand? Share your thoughts and perspectives by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We have a tough topic we're going to discuss today, folks. Please be mindful of your self-care. And if you or someone you love is struggling with a drug problem, help is available at the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration Helpline. Their number is 1-800-662-HELP. Let me introduce our guest now. Joining us from California is Chairwoman Angela Elliott Santos. She is the chairwoman for the Manzanita Band of Kumeyaay, Nation. Chairwoman, welcome to Native America Calling. Thank you, and good morning. Good morning to you as well. Next up from Tahlequah, Oklahoma, is Julie Skinner. She is the Senior Director of Behavioral Health for the Cherokee Nation. She is Ponca. Julie, welcome to you as well. Thank you. Glad to be here. And speaking with us from Mexico is Joseph Friedman. He is a researcher at UCLA. Joseph, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks so much for having me. And last, but certainly not least, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, we have Dr. Joseph Gaughan. 
He is a professor of anthropology and of global health and social medicine at Harvard University. He is Aani Grovan. Joe, welcome. Thanks. It's a, a pleasure to join you today. You bet. Chairwoman, I'd like to begin by acknowledging that the fentanyl crisis has hit your community and family especially hard. So first up, my condolences, and I appreciate your bravery and candor in joining us today. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, since July of, of 2021, um, we lost three tribal members. Um, two were my nephews and one was my first cousin. And um, it's an unspeakable tragedy to have to go through. And and I appreciate the the chance to get to speak about it today. Absolutely. And tell us, I mean, what are you comfortable sharing uh, about the crisis and just how deeply it's impacted not only your family, but the whole community there? Well, I do want to say that um, I know that none of those three people intended to leave the day that they took those drugs and left us. They were just people who were trying to sort through the traumas that they carry, um, both the the historical traumas and traumas from growing up on the reservation, um, from being dehumanized um, for generations. I think our people look for a way to self-medicate so that they can get through the day. Um, I think it's going to take a lot of healing and acknowledgement for us to get past these things. Um, I do want to say the tragedy hits really home for me. Um, my nephew, um, he had had some issues throughout his life, but he was finally on track to get better, my youngest nephew. He had um, gone through, well, after being incarcerated for a while, he had gotten out. He had um, many accomplishments when he was sent to a halfway house. He was getting better. He texted me pictures of the certificates that he had received and talked of how he was going to get his life better. Um, he had reunited with his wife and his two daughters. Um, and in that reunion, they uh, were expecting another child. His little boy was born and was seven days old when my nephew left this earth. Oh, geez. I think that was the hardest part was even looking back on my text from him to get ready to speak about this was he was getting better. He just had one slip up. He just had one moment where maybe he couldn't take what was going on and he relied on that and it just took his life. So it's so difficult to be a leader of the tribe that he was from and to have not been able to help him. I helped him in every way I could, encouraging words, telling him how proud I was of him, so happy for everything that he had done. I told him as many times as I could about his talents and how well he sang our traditional songs and what he learned from his grandpa and how I needed him to carry it on and teach my sons because we're running out of singers. We're running out of people to continue the culture. 
so the impact of losing him, I don't have the words to explain that to you and what it's done to not just our community and the people who loved him, but like I said, to myself as a leader, I want to help this. I want to stop this problem, but it's beyond me alone. And so I'm constantly looking for what can we do? What can we do to stop this so that we don't lose any more people? And we do have a clinic consortium. It's um, Southern Indian Health Council, a consortium of seven Kumeyaay tribes, and we have a lot of resources. We're currently trying to expand that. One of the one of the consortium tribes is um, doing a special opioid treatment center, um, and and we know that the one thing that's missing from treatment centers for our people is any cultural aspect. And we know that we're going to have to use culture as a foundation to bring our people out of what's happening. Chair mm-hmm. Woon, I really am sorry. And again, I just appreciate your bravery coming on the show here and talking with us today. Can you point to a moment where the fentanyl crisis really took hold in your community? Well, you know, you hear about it. Um and then when it hits you, you realize, well, and I mean, it, it's been hitting us for a while because even as it hits other reservations, those are your family too and your people. And so, you know, we've we've been through the despair. And, and I do want to say that for anyone who's out there listening who doesn't understand the despair that led to substance abuse for our people. For us, the Kumeyaay Nation, we had a vast territory from Oceanside to below Ensenada to over towards Yuma. And and we lived free and proud and with plenty of resources. And then, you know, we were pinned up and put on reservations in the late 1800s. In California, there was actually a bounty on our heads paid by the first governor, Peter Burnett. Um, So, when you look at what we've been through and the despair that led to first alcoholism, and then at some point it turned to meth, and then at some point it turned to heroin, and Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden there's this fentanyl. And I didn't know what it was. All of a sudden at the clinics, they were like, a few grains can kill you. And we didn't know what was happening until all of a sudden people were dying. Just sometimes during the same month, you attend a funeral for a young person on one reservation and then another. And so it was like, after all the tragedies we've been through, here was this thing that just takes people out. Um, and, and to quote my niece, who helped me with my words for the roundtable that Assemblymember Ramos had, her words were, my brother never had a chance. And so it, it seems like all of this took place also while we were going through this, you know, global pandemic. And, and at the same time, this other thing, this fentanyl thing that was just, it's just taking people so quickly and so often that it's it's unbelievable. Chairwoman, you know, from my own personal experience, often if someone has an alcohol or other type of substance abuse problem, the warning signs are everywhere, but this stuff is different. It just like, it just comes out of nowhere. And then all of a sudden, boom. It, I mean, 
do you, do you notice that? Like these people just, they seem like everything's fine. And then no, they're not. Can you talk about that? I agree completely. I will say that, you know, with um, one of my relatives, I had no idea that there was any, you know, substance use at all. I, I thought that um, things were going good and that, you know, um, not treatments, but, you know, kind of maintenance of past issues was going on. And from the outside looking in, you just look at that person like everything's going great. And then, like you said, all of a sudden you get a call at six in the morning saying that that person is gone. And and it just seemed like, how could this be? So I, I agree completely. I had no idea. And it really is everywhere. I was in a hotel a few years ago in a tribal casino, a very nice tribal casino property. And there was a, a fatal overdose just right across the hall from me. Uh, we're speaking now with Chairwoman Angela Elliott Santos, and she's describing uh, how the fentanyl crisis has impacted her community. And uh, we're going to talk more with Chairwoman about solutions and, and what her tribal community is doing to fight this crisis. But we do have to take a short break, and we really do invite anybody listening today to give us a call if you have firsthand experience of what this crisis is doing to our Native communities, if you have insights, if you have ideas, if you have any thoughts you'd like to share, our number, 1-800-996-2848. Once again, the number to call, 1-800-996-2848. You're listening to Native America Calling. A new podcast zeroes in on the former Red Cloud Indian Boarding School to open up the conversation about accountability for the disturbing abuses at past church-run schools. We'll hear about uncovering the truth in the American Genocide Investigation on the next Native America Calling. Cachet! Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about tribal efforts across the country to fight the threat of fentanyl overdoses. What do you think is driving the fentanyl crisis? What are some possible solutions? Join our conversation, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. On the line, we have Chairwoman Angela Elliott Santos, and she is with the Manzanita Band of Kumeyaay Nation, and Chairwoman, we are going to go ahead and bring Julie Skinner and Tahlequah into the conversation. But before we do that, I would like to give you a moment to just talk a little bit uh, about some of the efforts uh, that your tribal community is taking to combat this ongoing crisis. Well, definitely, we're trying to push the resources that are offered by our clinic. Um, we also have people having gatherings um, to discuss sobriety and to, to just 
support each other. We at Manzanita are also um, getting ready to have an extensive cultural program. So we're going to focus on um, culture and start with the kids as young as we can and try to instill in them those core values that our people have had for so long um, and try that way with prevention. Um, and, and really, we're going to be also reaching out to others to see how we can combat this. And then, like I said, one of the consortium tribes has moved forward with a just um, like opioid fentanyl type um, treatment. Someday, Manzanita does wish that we had an on-reservation place to deal with our people in our way to have a place where they could maybe come be safe and start the process of, of getting off of these things. So um, I, I don't have the best answers right now because this is just the beginning of what we're trying to do to stop what's going on. And I really am looking for other resources to see um, what we can add to our programs. Because although we have a number of resources there's not always that trust, and it's not always specific to to our culture. So we want to create those programs. Chairwoman, thoughts and prayers to your community and your family. At this point, I want to bring Julie Skinner into our conversation. Again, she is the Senior Director of Behavioral Health for Cherokee Nation in Tahlequah. Julie, what are you currently seeing at Cherokee Nation regarding fentanyl abuse? Well, we're seeing definitely an epidemic um, going on in our communities um, here. So we are in northeastern part of Oklahoma. Um, we have 14 counties in our reservation. And uh, over the years, I've worked for the tribe since 2000. So I've been here 23 years and worked in Indian child welfare and worked in behavioral health the last uh, 10 years. And so during that time, I've seen in the beginning of when we first started seeing, you know, are, are people starting to, to really use and abuse this the substances, um, with, especially with prescription drugs. And at the time, we didn't know what was going on. We just were noticing we were picking up a lot of children for neglect and um, for um, their parents were just not there and trying to understand what was going on at the time and realizing, you know, the, how, how the parents were trying to survive every day. And that some of those ways was to, to sell the prescription medications. And it was being handed out like candy, like it was unreal the amount of prescription medications your parents were able to get and to spread and to and to use themselves as well as sell in unreal like I we didn't even know it hit us um, and so as we started to go along and like really look at the what was going on and our starting we had to understand what was going on because we didn't at first and then over the last several years you know really um, bringing together focus groups reaching out um, we reached out to other tribes who have been doing this as well. Eastern Band, um, Cherokee really was a huge help for us. And we went out and did some side visits with them and learned what they were doing and really brought back what we had been learning to, to our community to try to really develop a, a plan. And so we came up with one um, to really help with our, our families and our people who are really being you know, victimized by the opioid epidemic, especially with fentanyl. And it's deadly, so deadly. And we were seeing... Um, a lot of deaths in our reservation as well. And um, even within our certain clinics, we're still having um, overdose. We had three overdose deaths in the last you know, three months with just in our MIT clinics. And so 
when we started looking at services and how we wanted to, to handle this, we know that recovery is different for everyone. So our goal is to create a continuum of care, like a, a way for no matter where you're at in recovery, that there's going to be a place for you to go. So you, you may benefit from inpatient. So we have that. You may benefit from an MAT clinic, which is medication-assisted treatment, and we have that. Maybe a peer recovery support specialist is going to work for you. That, that's what we're going to have. And so we have intensive outpatient service, which we didn't have before. Um, we know that um, our people can go inpatient and do really well. And as soon as they come back to the community, we know that this is a brain disease and that it's going to trigger these powerful cravings. And so we've got to have a resource. And we've got to have some, some solutions and some ways we can really combat that when they go back into the community, because we don't want to lose our people. We want them to come back into a community that's going to support them and that they have a way to really get into recovery. Sure, sure. Julie, opiates have been a documented problem for the Cherokee Nation. You've explained that. Uh, and the nation was recently part of a legal settlement with drug makers regarding overprescription. How is fentanyl related to that? So fentanyl is, one, is an opioid, one of the more powerful opioids. It's highly addictive. and where our overdoses, it's being cut into all different types of of drugs here, you know, marijuana, uh, methamphetamine. It, it's just being, and people don't know that they have that in, in, the, in the drug they're using. So that's what's happening. It's, it's causing these overdoses pretty quickly. And, you know, without people understanding when knowing what's in their supply, that it's really causing a lot of um, overdoses from that. Mm-hmm. And uh, with this settlement, uh, a new treatment center is being planned? Yeah, so we have been mostly been able to send our, our people to inpatient, but uh, outside of the trial, you know, we don't have we didn't have our own inpatient from home, um, but we really wanted to develop one um, that really incorpor- incorporates our culture, um, just like what Tara was just saying. That's exactly a culture is foundation that is totally a huge protective factor that we need to really bring back because a lot of our families and people have lost it. Uh, through all the, the historical trauma, the, the things that have happened to us as people over the last several um, decades. And so our goal is to incorporate that into our treatments, into our intensive outpatient treatments, into our groups, into our individual treatments, and into our inpatient treatments, that culture is going to be the foundation in which we build our interventions around. And how large will the treatment center be, and when do you expect to have it open? We're going to have it. Um, we're going to have two phases. Um, the first phase is we're going to open at 50 beds and then um, expand that as needed um, as we go along. And it's going to be for men and women. And we're hoping to uh, open it up in the next, like within the next year, um, maybe sooner. It just depends on how fast we can get it built. Um, but we have been working really hard on getting that up and, and going in the planning stages, and really excited about it. We're excited, too. Good luck with that, uh, Julie, there at Cherokee Nation. And please stay with us. Uh, We're going to come back and and ask Julie some more questions. But before we do that, I would like to bring Joseph Friedman into our conversation now. He's a researcher at UCLA. Joseph, what do you find most disturbing about the current surge in fentanyl overdoses? Yeah, thanks. I think that's a great question. It's, It's important for all of us to understand just the massive scope of the fentanyl problem in the United States. I think we we all realize this is a big issue, but the United States, after recent surges, has an overdose death rate that's something like 20 to 30 times the global average. We're two or three times more affected than the second most affected country in the world. And I think it's just important to note that there's really never been any kind of documented overdose crisis um, in, in you know the recent numbers we have that looks like the crisis we have in the U.S. now. 
this is truly a kind of unprecedented crisis for our country. And unfortunately, within that, over the past few years, we've seen a sharp rise in racial and ethnic inequalities in overdose. So although I think for a long time there's been this narrative in the media and even in academic literature that overdose is a, you know, a quote-unquote white problem, really that was never true. And over the past couple of years, we've seen sharp increases in overdose deaths among Native American communities and also Black and African American communities as well. So in the latest data from the CDC, provisional numbers, we're seeing Native Americans suffering an overdose death rate about 75% higher than white communities and Black and African Americans having a death rate about 50% higher. Mm. There are also very important um, increases in overdose specifically among adolescents uh, over the past couple of years. And this is really new because although we've had overdose in the U.S. for the past you know, 40 years, rising year after year, really just in the past couple of years, uh, specifically deaths among teens, high school-age teens, are starting to spike. And that's because of the onset of uh, counterfeit pills that look like Percocet or Oxycontin, but actually contain a potentially lethal amount of fentanyl. And it's very difficult to identify that these pills are counterfeit without sophisticated technology. So basically, you have to assume that any pill that's not provided from a doctor is, is counterfeit and contains fentanyl at this point. And specifically among teenagers, we also see pretty large inequalities. So uh, Native American teens being about twice as likely as white teens to be affected by this, by this problem. So there's, there's really a kind of massive scope of this problem in our country, and it's something we really need to desperately need to invest more resources in. This is so, so shocking. It's frightening, just beyond frightening, really, to, to hear you describe this, as well as our other guests. Counterfeit pills. I mean, Joseph, how's this stuff getting into our community? Who, who's making this stuff? Who's bringing it in? Yeah. I mean, you know, unfortunately, with, with the fentanyl crisis, um, we've seen that uh, it's just so profitable that there's just so much demand for these products that, you know, as soon as one kind of illicit supply line is broken down by law enforcement, another one just pops up to kind of fill that void. So I think, you know, unfortunately, um, we're probably not going to be able to police our way out of this crisis or, you know, uh, make drugs disappear out of out of our country as much as we might like to be able to do that. I think what we really need to do is get down to the kind of roots of what is causing addiction um, in our communities and, and kind of provide people the support they need to uh, have stability in their lives, because we know that overdose is related to instability, and, um, and help people kind of rebuild their lives and, instead of having an, an unfortunate uh, end in overdose. How hard is it to kick this stuff, Joseph, for, for somebody who's really hooked? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the thing is, uh, when you work with people who have had substance use disorders, you realize that um, it's often not really the drug, right? It's often kind of history of trauma. The majority of people, if they try fentanyl, they're not going to end up, you know, physically dependent on it and using it in a chaotic way. It's just about, for certain people who... Um, have have had perhaps some trauma in their life or for some other reason, the drug is kind of fulfilling a psychological need for them, making them feel whole. And for people like that, it, it's, it's, it can be very hard to, to, to leave these substances behind. But there are really good evidence-based treatments for this, right? We know that buprenorphine and methadone and harm reduction um, and, and health, basically good healthcare options that we have work really well. The problem is they're just 
they're just drastically underfunded in our country. You know, the, the only countries in the world that have actually been successful in reversing their opioid overdose crises have done it by making very low barrier um, services available universally, basically for free, and putting harm reduction right in, in the community with folks. And unfortunately, we just don't have anything like that at a, at a large scale in the U.S. right now. Joseph, you mentioned these efforts being underfunded, and I know that the Biden administration has pledged well over a billion dollars to fight the crisis. The CDC is kicking in, too. Sounds like that's not going to be enough money, though. Yeah, I think that's right, because ultimately we're talking about the structure of our healthcare system. And, and you know, um, we've spent the overwhelming majority of drug policy dollars trying to police uh, the use of drugs and trying to um, invest in milit- militarized kind of interventions to intercept drugs before they get into the country. And unfortunately, you know, despite these endless billions that we've spent on law enforcement approaches to addiction, we really haven't seen a lot of gains. So I think, um, although there have been in recent years, you know, there have been some sums of money that sound large. If you really look at the big picture, we spend almost nothing on on treatment and harm reduction compared to what we spend on policing. So. You know, I think hopefully what we need to do over the next couple of years is kind of start to shift the model towards something that actually is supported by the scientific evidence about the healthcare options we have. For someone who uh, is struggling with this drug or has been tempted or has been offered to them, what do you tell those people? What kind of advice can we offer anybody listening on the air right now that's in addition to the crisis line that, that we mentioned earlier, we shared, and I'll share that number again, just so folks have it, 1-800-662-HELP. What else, what else can we do to support folks that are struggling, Joseph? Yeah, no, it's such, a, it's such an important question. I would say for everybody, it's just really important that they know the risks of the, the illicit drug supply right now. So, um, you know, certainly for a long time, we've known that, that you know, it's possible to overdose and die from, from illicit drugs, right? But we are in an unprecedentedly dangerous moment. In many cases, it's not people who've been using drugs for a long period of time. It's just somebody who may have experimented with uh, pills that they thought were authentic and were actually counterfeit a handful of times, and then tragedy strikes. And so I think the first thing is just kind of education about really these risks are profound. And and not every drug is the same, right? So there's actually never been kind of good documented cases of, um, of a lot of fentanyl being found in cannabis um, or in alcohol, right? And so there are, there are substances that are, lo- that are much safer. And then, you know, any pill or powder right now is kind of the highest risk category. So that's the first thing is making sure people actually accurately understand the risk. And then I think we need to talk about ways to find support, right? So basically seeking out, there are medications available that can help people shift from, uh, you know, some of the most dangerous drugs to something that will uh, resolve the kind of cravings and resolve any withdrawal symptoms, but is associated with almost no risk. And those can be uh, obtained from a doctor. Another interesting thing I've learned uh, just getting ready for this show today is is the price of this stuff can very widely like a pill. In some communities, it can be as low as $2. And in some of these more remote native communities, uh, a pill can cost like almost $100. Um, that's that's really perplexing. Um, why is that, Joseph? Why is that such a huge range in prices like that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> what we have seen with the advent of Sentinel is the price dropping across the board. So, um, so you know, because when when prescription drugs that were actually made in a factory and at one point prescribed by a doctor and then diverted to the to the black market, when that was the kind of main driver of the crisis, the pills were quite expensive because they had to, you know, there, there was just less easy access in a certain sense. They all had to come from a doctor. Now with fentanyl, the market is being flooded with very low cost. Uh, there's kind of a lot of competition. And so, you know, people talk about now being able to overdose on literally $1 worth of fentanyl in certain oh places on the West and West Coast cities. I mean, I think the thing with a, with a, is an illicit market is that it doesn't follow logic, right? So sometimes people can, uh, prices can just be really elevated just because there isn't a lot of access until a bunch of competitors come up. All righty. Joseph, I know your time is limited today, so I really want to thank you for taking the time and speaking with us today. Folks, we're going to take one more break and we'll be back to talk more about the fentanyl crisis. Challenges to societal harmony abound. Trauma, depression, addiction. In Native communities, these challenges affect nearly everyone. The Native American Social Work Studies Institute educates social workers for careers to address the needs of Native communities. You can be part of the solution as a peer support worker, community health worker, or a counselor with culturally relevant training from the Native American Social Work Studies Institute. Info at online.nmhu.edu. New Mexico Highlands University supports this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. We're discussing the ongoing threat of fentanyl and addiction. If you have a comment or question you'd like to contribute to our conversation, if you feel comfortable talking on the air today, please give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. In fact, our phone lines are open now and our producers are standing by. So if you would like to share any thoughts, any comments, any insights, or just share what your tribe is doing to combat this crisis, we would really love to get some input from our listeners today. So again, that number to call, 1-800-996-2848. Our next guest is Dr. Joseph Gaughan. He's in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He's at Harvard. And Joe, thank you again for joining us today. And what we're learning here is that fentanyl has been around a long time. Can you explain more about why it's such an issue now? Yeah, uh, thanks, Sean. It's really uh, good to join your other guests today. And first of all, first of all, to the chairwoman, I'm so sorry for your losses. Um, we in our communities have been subject to such uh, tragic losses for a very long time um, in different waves of of drugs um, and substances that come into our communities. And so, you know, I think if we think about the opioid crisis in America and in Indian country, we are appreciating particularly that there have been different waves. Um, and so, you know, over 20 years ago, there started to be uh, the uh, use of prescription opioids that had been uh, provided by doctors and physicians, often in the IHS, to some of our tribal members who then got addicted to those, and that created a good deal of problems. Um, then we had a rise in a second wave of opioid uh, use and, and challenges uh, with heroin, um, you know, closer to over a decade ago. And then about a decade ago, we started to see the impacts of fentanyl. And um, the thing about fentanyl, as you've heard, is that um, it's, you know, illegally and illicitly manufactured and often placed or laced into other kinds of drugs of use, whether it's powder or counterfeit pills. And so people don't always know. And it's so powerful and potent that a very small amount can lead to overdose and death. 
Um, these things are really hard to track in terms of research, and so we tend to uh, have information about overdose deaths. That's the main kinds of disparities that we've been tracking, and we can see uh, the disproportionate impact on Indian country. Um, but I think fentanyl is such a concern in part because, as uh, everyone has explained, um, it's especially potent and therefore can lead to overdose more readily than other kinds of drugs, and that people who aren't even necessarily having a substance use disorder or addiction, but are just interested in using a drug recreationally even one time might end up with a fatal uh, a dose of fentanyl in the drug they're using and die even when they wouldn't necessarily have been indicated for addiction or substance use disorder treatment. So um, it, it's created a great deal of consternation and trouble. I, if I can, I just wanna uh, mention a couple things that we haven't heard so much about yet that I think the audience should know about. Um, the first is people have talked about the difference between harm reduction approaches to treatment um, versus actually it's usually referred to as abstinence only. And harm reduction is looking for ways that doesn't necessarily require people to stop using drugs altogether, but instead is just trying to find ways to intervene so that drug use is less deadly or less uh, impairing. And um, one thing that's you know, uh, available, at least in broader society for some communities are test strips that people can access to sort of quickly check whether a substance they're trying to use has fentanyl in it or not. And that's one example of a kind of intervention that's sort of like harm reduction. Um, obviously, um, we have medication-assisted treatment available in many of our communities, including um, the communities that people, as your guests, have talked about today. Um, sometimes that's a little controversial in Indian country because it entails uh, the use of other kinds of um, substances uh, to manage and handle uh, compulsion and cravings and those sorts of things. And so you heard um, naltrexone and uh, buprenorphine um, as examples, methadone as examples that we're familiar with. I think in Indian country, it would be helpful for us to be a lot more um, open to and maybe discussing of these uh, medication-assisted treatments. Um, versus counseling only. None of these treatments are offered without counseling, but uh, alternative to medication-assisted treatment is often counseling only. Um, but the best science suggests that medication-assisted treatment, treatment is really important for being mm -hmm. effective um, with these particular substances. Um, the final thing I just want to mention that folks haven't said so much about is stigma. You know, of course, um, people are very concerned about accessing substance use disorder treatment because um, of the negative reputation um, and people's um, you know, opinions of them. And I think that if we can be careful when we uh, exert leadership roles in Indian country to use language that avoids that kind of stigma, um, it, it can help us a little bit. Um, I actually thought of one last thing, which is we haven't talked so much about access to naloxone, um, naloxone kits. Um, and I just wonder from maybe some of your tribal leaders uh, how much that is helping out in our communities. Naloxone um, kits are, you know, ready to hand, you know, glass ampules that contain, you know, an antidote essentially um, to an overdose. And if you have it available, um, then when someone overdoses, you can inject them uh, with this uh, naloxone and it can save their lives. Um, of course, everyone should always call 911 as well when someone is in an overdose crisis. But those are some thoughts in response to your question. Thank you. Joe, very much. And I'm going to go ahead and bring Julie Skinner back into the conversation and, and ask Julie uh, some of these um, treatments that, that Joe has described, and even the harm reduction that I just heard of. And it brings to mind like these programs that we'll offer 
free needles and things like that to addicts. Uh, are you folks uh, working with those types of solutions as well there at Cherokee Nation, Julie? Yes, we are. We um, have a harm reduction clinic. We just opened that last fall. Um, we have a, a syringe service program. Um, we have peer recovery support specialists there as well, um, where we have the like what he talked about, the being able to test your um, supply, making sure you don't have fentanyl in there or what to do if you do have it. Um, so we definitely, our harm reduction program has been, we've launched that and it's been very already, I've been overwhelmed by um, the need that, that has already been shown for, for in our community. We have um, a medication assisted treatment. We have four clinics currently. Um, and again, I mean, we're creating a continuum of care. So like I said earlier, it, it, everyone's recovery is going to look different. Is MAT perfect for everyone? It's not. That's not what we're saying, but we're providing it for those that would be a really good match for. And we've been able to work with those those um, patients as well in that in that regard. And as uh, finally, he's talking about stigma. We do a big communication campaign. Stigma is the most horrible hurdle we have to to get through because people. It's a very isolating thing to have um, when you have addiction um, and so people are shamed and they don't want to come to treatment and so our goal is to really do uh, work with our our communications department and helping people you know understand addiction so they're not just passing judgment and keeping people from getting help because it, it does it, it takes a lot of courage to um, um, come out and say hey I, I have this problem how can I get help and so our, our harm reduction program we've been able to get people into treatment already from people coming to you know getting the syringes and getting tested we're going to be doing point of care testing to test for hepatitis c and um, hiv and um, that's going to help us get services to them because this might be the first time they're interacting with any kind of healthcare uh, system at all and so we're trying to provide all these different services in different ways so that no matter where you're at in recovery, um, you may be abstinence-based only. Maybe that's the work. And we do have a service for that. And so, but maybe your, you know, MAT is what's going to really help you get through your addiction. Julie, thank you for chiming in. Let's go to the phones now. Sanoa is up in Turtle Mountain, Chippewa, listening on station KEYA. Hello, Sanoa. Hi there. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for calling in. What's on your mind? Yeah, so I just wanted to call in and offer my, my two cents on this discussion. My name is Sonola Rock, and as you mentioned, I'm from the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa here in North Dakota. I'm also the current Miss North Dakota USA, and um, my platform is called Hope is There. And the heart of my platform is really addressing these feelings of hopelessness that a lot of uh, Indigenous youth feel in this country. And uh, you know, a large part of that is due to the generational traumas that our communities have been subjected to over the uh, centuries. And, you know, I myself am speaking from my personal experience and those around me. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of adversities that we must overcome as, as Indigenous people. And, and to be successful is, uh, comes at a, you know, a great cost because there's, there's so many things happening in our personal lives that make it very difficult to, to thrive in a contemporary world. Um, and so my platform, Hope Is There, is really to, uh, I guess, provide uh, resources to Native youth to not feel so hopeless and to feel like there is a path forward for them and that the grass is greener on the other side. And so tying that to this discussion of fentanyl and just the overall drug abuse conversation in Indian country, um, you know, I, I've really been intrigued by this conversation that we've had uh, this morning on on, uh, on on the call. And... Um, I think one thing that's important to note is that there's much of this discussion has been in regards to addressing this, this fentanyl crisis head on 
um, and what can we do to help those who are struggling and how can we get them to come back to themselves. And of course, that, that's critical and very important. However, I think it's important to also take the stance that uh, we need to do preventative uh, measures as well to make sure that our Indigenous people and particularly particularly the youth uh, don't feel so hopeless and that they have to drown themselves in drugs and alcohol and, and things like fentanyl, that they, they feel that there are there is hope and that they, they have um, other outlets for their for their their grief or whatever it is that they're experiencing. Um, and so I can so no, I'm my, sorry. My Real quick, I mean, I really appreciate this call today, very much so, and I really appreciate your your conviction here. And you mentioned preventative measures, especially with regard to youth. Can you uh, elaborate a little bit? I mean, what do you think is most effective with regard to prevention, especially for youth? Yeah, exactly. So um, speaking to my own community, I I live up here in the Turtle Mountains, and uh, I think for the most part, reservations across the United States and even Canada are very isolated from you know, major cities or um, really any any financial resources, anything like that. And so speaking to my reservation specifically, there's not a lot for young people to do. I mean, we have the bar scene, we have the casino, um, and, you know, that's about it. So I think if there is an investment by our tribal leadership to um, create more opportunity for young people to branch out into whatever it is their passions are, be that, you know, art, be that music, be that fitness, um, whatever it is, to have more opportunities for young people to be able to express themselves, to be able to channel their 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 energy into something that is productive and uh, you know beneficial to their overall mental health and physical health, uh, whatever it is. And uh, you know, okay. right now in Indian country, we're kind of at an unprecedented time where Indian country has been injected injected with so much federal funding um, due to the COVID nineteen pandemic, and so there really is a great opportunity for our tribal leaders to. Uh, create programming uh, that is uh, helpful in the building of strong and healthy, resilient Native communities. Sonoa, I appreciate you so much for calling in and and joining the conversation. Folks, Sonoa LaRock, Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Station KEYA. Let's go back now to Joe Gone and Joe, listening to Sonoa talk about prevention and some of these measures and what what else needs to happen here? Because I, I, I'm filled with hope with this show. We're listening to so many different ideas and solutions. But at the same time, you know, it's just this ongoing crisis. And here we are talking about fentanyl and opiates. And, you know, we could talk about methamphetamines. We could talk about alcohol. And sometimes it's just hard not to just really get overwhelmed with just how big the overall drug problem is in this country. Joe, please. Yeah, thank you. Um, Important question. And uh, I find it very hopeful to hear uh, Sonoa talk about that prevention effort that she's engaged in, and so many of our communities do have some prevention efforts, uh, especially with respect to youth trying to uh, provide alternative kinds of activities and engagement for them so that they don't um, end up on the wrong path or you know, going off the rails in some way. I think people have talked about some of the precursors to why addiction and substance use disorders you know, a little uh, more common in many of our communities. Also, also always important to point out that we have lots and lots of community members who are in recovery, and we have others for whom addiction or substance use disorder was never a problem. Um, for, but for that subset of our communities who do contend with addiction, 
um, trying to um, uh, create community conditions that um, really um, compete with and undermine the pathway to addiction is probably important. And this is a challenge when you don't have a lot of resources. But honestly, I think sometimes when it comes to Indian country, historical trauma, the legacy of colonization, so much of what ails us is not really going to be reversed by medical services and medical approaches alone. So we're all aware of the important work that we're doing um, through the healthcare system and through setting up treatment programs and so on, but that's not really necessarily getting at the source of the problem, which has to do with centuries of uh, dispossession and reservation captivity and all the things that other guests have said. So um, it is a little bit daunting, but I do think that a couple of things that would matter would be, um, as Sonoa said, more programs for youth um, for things to be doing um, that involve uh, non-substance related activities. And also, I think, you know, better economies, which we're all aware of and all our communities are reaching for, although right. that's often very difficult. Absolutely. Yeah, good point to make, Joe. We're going to have to wrap up here in about another minute or so, but I would like to pivot back now to Chairwoman Angela Elliott-Santos. And Chairwoman, I'm going to go ahead and give you the last word on our show today. Anything else you'd like to add to our conversation or anything else we need to be aware of with regard to this fentanyl crisis in our Native communities? No, I mean, I just want to say thank you for this coverage, for helping get the word out. Thank you to the other guests for the things that they said. And I do think that the new norm is I do have Narcan sitting on my counter and I do have it in all my tribal buildings. And we have had trainings of our staff on how to help people. But my biggest takeaway here is we need healing. We need to look at the individuals. We need to cherish them and let them know that they are important and join together to fight this so that we don't have any more losses. And um, I guess I just want to say that it, it does make my heart happy that there's so many people out there trying to understand this and, and work on the problem. So um, I look forward to more of these kind of discussions and, and collaboration um, on how we save our people. Chairwoman, I want to thank you, along with Julie Skinner, Dr. Joseph Gaughan, and Joseph Friedman. This has been a really challenging conversation, but a good one about tribal efforts to combat the fentanyl crisis. Join us next week for another lineup of conversations about Indigenous issues and topics. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Marino Spencer is the engineer. Show McPolin is the digital producer. Nola Daves Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our chief operations officer. The president and CEO of Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. I'm host Sean Spruce. Have a safe weekend. Support by Amerind, Indian Country's 100% tribally owned insurance partner. Amerind works with tribal governments and their business enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian Country. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto solutions at amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. 
For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.